Hi, and welcome to Security Explained. I'm Chris Grayson. I'm Drew Porter. And I'm Logan Lamb. We're coming to you every two weeks with tips and tricks on how to protect yourself and your loved ones out there on the internet and in real life. Many do not know, but there is a battle for your privacy, which has been waging on for a while here in the United States. The government is now using its power in an attempt to force companies to enable backdoor access to your data under the guise of battling illegal content online. If we are not vigilant, the U.S. could adopt similar measures used by the Chinese government to invade the privacy of its citizens. And the scary part is that it is supported by both sides of the political aisle here in the U.S. This morning, we, we started recording and uh, Drew gave us a link to a statement that was put out by the Department of Justice Office of Public Affairs um, a week ago from the time of recording. So this is not anything that we've done before, but I'll tell you what, after reading this this morning, I'm kind of, I guess, not dumbfounded. It's it's It was going to, this was going to happen. This was going to come at some point, given the trend of what's been happening in the past few years. But now that it's finally here, I think it's pretty important that folks hear the language of what they're saying. So we're going to take a few minutes and read top to bottom the statement that was released uh, by the Department of Justice Office of Public Affairs. So here we go. So it's entitled the International Statement, End-to-End Encryption and Public Safety. We, the undersigned, support strong encryption, which plays a crucial role in protecting personal data, privacy, intellectual property, trade secrets, and cybersecurity. It also serves a vital purpose in repressive states to protect journalists, human rights defenders, and other vulnerable people, as stated in the 2017 resolution of the UN Human Rights Council. Encryption is an existential anchor of trust in the digital world, and we do not support counterproductive and dangerous approaches that would materially weaken or limit security systems. Particular implementations of encryption technology, however, pose significant challenges to public safety, including to highly vulnerable members of our societies like sexually exploited children. We urge industry to address our serious concerns where encryption is applied in a way that wholly precludes any legal access to content. We call on technology companies to work with governments to take the following steps focused on reasonable, technical, feasible solutions, and then three bullet points here. One, embed the safety of the public and system designs, thereby enabling companies to act against illegal contents and activity effectively with no reduction to safety and facilitating the investigation and prosecution of offenses and safeguarding the vulnerable. Two, enable law enforcement access to contents in a readable and usable format where an authorization is lawfully issued, is necessary and proportionate, and is subject to strong safeguards and oversight. And three, Engage in consultation with governments and other stakeholders to facilitate legal access in a way that is substantive and genuinely influences design decisions. Okay, and the next section is called Impact on Public Safety. Law enforcement has a responsibility to protect citizens by investigating and prosecuting crime and safeguarding the vulnerable. Technology companies also have responsibilities and put in place terms of service for their users that provide them authority to act to protect the public. End-to-end encryption that precludes lawful access to the content of communications in any circumstances directly impacts these responsibilities, creating severe risks to public safety in two ways. One, by severely undermining a company's own ability to identify and respond to violations of their terms of service. This includes responding to the most serious illegal content and activity on its platform, including child sexual exploitation and abuse, violent crime, terrorist propaganda, and attack planning. And two, By precluding the ability of law enforcement agencies to access content in limited circumstances, 
where necessary and proportionate to investigate serious crimes and protect national security where there is lawful authority to do so. Concern about these risks has been brought into sharp focus by proposals to apply end-to-end encryption across major messaging services. UNICEF estimates that one in three internet users is a child. The We Protect Global Alliance, a coalition of 98 countries, 39 of the largest companies in the global technology industry, and 41 leading, leading civil society organizations, set out clearly the severity of the risks posed to children online by inaccessible encrypted services in its 2019 global threat assessment. Quote is, publicly accessible social media and communications platforms remain the most common methods for meeting and grooming children online. In 2018, Facebook Messenger was responsible for nearly 12 million of the 18.4 million worldwide reports of CSAM, child sexual abuse material, to the U.S. National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. These reports risk disappearing if end-to-end encryption is implemented by default, since current tools used to detect CSAM do not work in end-to-end encrypted environments. On 3rd of October 2019, NCMEC published a statement on this issue stating that if end-to-end encryption is implemented without a solution in place to safeguard children, NCMEC estimates that more than half of its cyber tip line reports will vanish. And on 11 December 2019, the United States and European Union issued a joint statement making clear that while encryption is important for protecting cybersecurity and privacy, the use of warrant-proof encryption by terrorists and other criminals, including those who engage in online child sexual exploitation, Compromise the ability of law enforcement agencies to protect victims and the public at large. The next section is entitled Response. In light of these threats, there is increasing consensus across governments and international institutions that action must be taken. While encryption is vital and privacy and cybersecurity must be protected, it should not come at the expense of wholly precluding law enforcement and the tech industry itself from being able to act against the most serious illegal content and activity online. In July 2019, the governments of the United Kingdom, United States, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada issued a communique, communique sorry, concluding that tech companies should include mechanisms in the design of their encrypted products and services whereby governments acting with appropriate legal authority can gain access to data in a readable and usable format. These companies should also embed the safety of their users and their system designs, enabling them to take action against illegal content. On 8 October 2019, the Council of the EU adopted its conclusions on combating child sexual abuse, stating, The Council urges the industry to ensure lawful access for law enforcement and other competent authorities to digital evidence, including when encrypted or hosted on IT servers located abroad, without prohibiting or weakening encryption and in full respect to privacy and fair trial guarantees consistent with applicable law. The We Protect Global Alliance, NCMEC, and a coalition of more than 100 child protection organizations and experts from around the world have all called for action to ensure that measures to increase privacy, including end-to-end encryption, should not come at the expense of children's safety. And the last section here, which is entitled Conclusion, says, We are committed to working with industry to develop reasonable proposals that will allow technology companies and governments to protect the public and their privacy, defend cybersecurity and human rights, and support technological innovation. While this statement focuses on the challenges posed by end-to-end encryption, the commit, that commitment applies across the range of encrypted services available, including device encryption, custom encrypted applications, and encryption across integrated platforms. We reiterate the, that data protection, respect for privacy, and the importance of encryption is tech, as technology changes and global internet standards are developed remain at the forefront of each state's legal framework. However, We challenge the assertion that public safety cannot be protected without compromising privacy or security. 
We strongly believe that approaches protecting each of these important values are possible and strive to work with industry to collaborate on mutually agreeable solutions. And that is it. There's a lot of things to break down in that. And <laughs> yeah, a little bit. It, if you're not familiar on the technology side, that sounds great, right? Like that sounds like, oh, these are reasonable measures. They, they use reasonable in there. They want to work with industry. They said reasonable a lot. Un- unfortunately, yeah, whenever someone says reasonable or like common sense when it comes to like the government and, and when it comes to like privacy and security, uh, y- you know what they mean is we want to take that away common sense encryption safeguards or, or children safeguards or, you know, reasonable expectations uh, to work with industry. These are generally ways that those who create laws and those who push agendas will go and get mass adoption. Because again, if, if you hadn't dived into this beforehand, just reading that, it sounds like, oh yeah, they want to save the children. And we're still going to have encryption and, and privacy. They, they even said that. And then others will say, well, I have nothing to hide, so I have nothing to fear. And we'll get into that statement a little bit later. Uh, but with this, but before we go into this uh, very deeply, we should talk about what the DOJ wants, right? And they laid it out in those three bullet points in the very beginning. They want to enable law enforcement access to content in a readable and usable format. And that means that they want the actual conversations that they can use uh, in a investigation. That's what readable and usable format means. So data companies right now, what they give them if they don't have, you know, the, the ability to unencrypt the data, which they, they shouldn't because the keys should be owned by the people who are actually in the communication what they'll do is they just have to give them an encrypted chunk. So law enforcement just sees a whole bunch of random data and they can't use it necessarily for their investigation. The second thing that they wanted is enable the safety of the public in system design, therefore enabling companies to act against illegal content. So what they're requesting there is companies need to be able to remove or to you know, respond and report to law enforcement if there's illegal activity happening onto uh, or on their platform, not onto, but on their platform by different users. And then the last thing is uh, engage in uh, consultations with governments and other stakeholders to facilitate legal access in a way that is substantive to generally influence design decisions. So, what we're talking about there now is having a committee that says, hey, these are the best practices uh, when it comes to designing a system that law enforcement can still access. And with that, uh, your product now has to conform to these best practices or uh, you will be out of uh, you know, regulation and there will be additional punishments for that. Now, some companies today, their platforms and, and these companies have been operating for, you know, decades, uh, but their platforms today don't have the ability to do this. So now they have to redesign their system. Mm-hmm. And again, if you look at these just individually without reading into them too much, it seems like Sounds you know, these, these are reasonable 
yeah. uh, to, to take their word that they like to use, uh, things to do. And, and we're not saying that we don't believe there should be action taken uh, to fight against, you know, exploitation of children or anything like that. We're yeah. all for, you know, locking up pedos and uh, ensuring that they can't abuse children worldwide. Uh, but we also have to remember with that. Yeah, that's that, not that what this can, does. Yeah, that, yeah that, that's not what that, this does. That is not the goal of this. Even though they state it is the goal, this is not the end goal uh, of this. And, and it will not do that in, yeah, in any, any capacity. Yeah, anytime you see uh, legislation coming through, which is using like exploited children or other like, pick some demographic and something really horrible happening to them when that is the kind of the, the flag under which legislation is being being approved or being pushed forward. That is a big indicator that what's going on in there is actually fairly objectionable. Uh, but it's this strategy where it's like, well, if, if you don't agree to this legislation, clearly you're pro uh, like exploitation of children. And so it's really hard to take that position as a, as a politician because like you don't want to be, be pointed out as that person. But anytime you see this sort of language being used to justify something happening that sounds kind of complicated, but might be okay. Just this is kind of, I, I see it as like, this is a big weapon to bring to a fight is like this kind of language where yes, you can't possibly disagree with this. Otherwise you're, you're supporting child exploitation and they bring the big weapon to the fight because they're trying to fight for something that is really big. Yeah, definitely. And, and, uh, let's talk about how they get access today. Well, actually, that, let me let me yeah, let me no, go go ahead. Bring something else up first because I, I feel like we have a good understanding of what encryption is here. Why does encryption actually matter? Um, and, and how does it work? And so, so the way that I uh, basically you're using encryption every single day, whether you realize it or not. When you're browsing the web, anytime you're going to a website that's like HTTPS colon slash slash something, that S is fairly significant. That means that your connection is encrypted. Uh, the majority of protocols that you use these days will typically be using encryption as well, um, whether that's sending email, whether that's the different services that apps on your phone connect to. Just generally speaking, encryption is used all over the place. It is, it is, it is out there. The, the way that I like to think about it, there's, there's two kinds of encryption that, are, that can be relevant to, to this conversation. Well, okay, I'm, that's a gross simplification, but there's something called symmetric cryptography which is where uh, I like to think of it as I have a lockbox and I can take data and I put it in this lockbox and then I lock it with this key and anybody else with this key can unlock it and get the data back out. But if you don't have that key, nobody can tell what data is in that lockbox. Um, and so that's symmetric. And then you have uh, asymmetric, which is where you actually have two keys. And if I take data and I put it in the lockbox and I lock it with one key, it will only unlock with the other key. Um, and so I like basically once I put data in the lockbox with my key, I can't get it back out. Uh, only the owner of the other the other key is is the one that's able to access it. And that is the type of encryption that is is used for the most part, well, in good schemes at least, for this whole end-to-end -end encryption thing. Um, and basically, what will happen? So let's say that like Logan and Drew or I are communicating with each other on a platform that uses end-to-end -end encryption. Basically, uh, our devices, our apps are going to do this little song and dance and come up with a key pair so that, let's say I'm talking to Drew, Drew has a key on his device, I have a key on my device. 
when I type a message to Drew, the app will take that message, encrypt it with my key, send it over to Drew, and then Drew's device will take his key and decrypt it. And then he'll have the data that I sent to him. And um, typically the way that that would happen, like let's take a social media application, for instance, is like I actually type the message in, press send, it gets encrypted, gets sent up to the company's servers and is stored on those servers until Drew receives the message. So basically the social media company has lots and lots and lots of these messages, but they are encrypted. And because the keys for decrypting that data are only reside on Drew and I's devices, the they, they cannot see what is inside those messages. Um, and that's the sort of end-to-end encryption that uh, law enforcement finds, at least in this, finds particularly problematic because it's like, oh, well, we can't, uh, sorry, to, I, we cannot legally force a company to decrypt this data because they actually don't have the capability to do so. Okay. Yeah, Drew, no, that, take that, 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 that was a great explanation. Thank you. Yeah, that, uh, I'm sure that would help the listeners out a ton knowing what we're talking about. So, so with this, let's talk about how access is obtained today for data, right, with, with law enforcement. Not talking about what the DOJ is trying to work on, but how they actually use uh, their tools that they have today to get what they need. So the first one we're going to talk about, uh, this is all dealing with lawful interception, right? We're not going to talk about unlawful interception, though. That is a tool with some dev- government groups but uh, not the groups that we're going to be talking about. We're going to talk about lawful interception. So the first thing that we have is there's a few different types of warrants out there. And the most common type of warrant used by law enforcement is called a Title III warrant. And a lot of times when, when a warrant is served uh, or is given, uh, you know, it has to be signed by a judge and, and there's an approval process and it's not just given out willy-nilly, hopefully. But a lot of times what they'll do is they'll work with companies. So they know someone is doing some bad things and they have a cell phone. They will work with the cell companies. They know someone's doing bad things and they're chatting through Facebook. Uh, They'll work with Facebook and Facebook will give them the data. Uh, The cell companies will give them the data, right? All the data that they can that's requested in the warrant. Now, one of the issues that law enforcement has is and this is a true issue this isn't like law enforcement overstating this issue this is a real issue and i've seen this uh in person uh, as well is a request is made and then it can take a while so a request is made for some information and it takes the cell companies two weeks to get them back And, and that is a unfortunate reality uh with dealing with warrants and going through the proper procedures now, they have that information, and it might help in their investigation, but what they really needed was it now. Um, so, it's now it's old data. Sure, it can help their investigation, but they needed it beforehand. And, and this is one of the things that the DOJ currently is complaining about. Now, the next thing, let's say we're dealing with an international um, uh, case or, or something of, you know, that can be tied to foreign terrorism or or foreign actors, something like that. We have another type of warrant called a FISA warrant. And FISA, F-I-S-A, stands for the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978. This has been around for a long time, and it's actually been used quite a bit. A lot of people didn't know about FISA, uh, even though it was passed in 1978. 
uh, and FISA warrants until about around the 2012 timeframe when the Snowden leaks happened. Or was that 2011? I, I forget the exact timeframe. Literally yeah. <laughs> uh, around that time, right? In between 2011 to 2013, uh, for sure. Uh, people started to learn what FISA was and FISA warrants. And it was all in the news. And a lot of people who hadn't been ex- you know, exposed to it were shocked that it was a process that we had, even though that law has literally been around for decades. Um, just a lot of people don't know all the capabilities that law enforcement has. So they're shocked when they learn about new capabilities uh, or other agencies have. So uh, these warrants uh, are done through uh, what many would consider a secret court, uh, one that is not public, one that is information is presented and they then get a judge again to approve the actual warrant. It's done through a committee, though it's it's not like a regular Title III warrant. There's a few different uh, steps with it. But generally, when someone is applying for a FISA warrant, that means something really bad is going to happen, like an intimate terrorist attack, and we need access to something right now. And uh, they get access to it right now because generally it's on the federal side, and the federal side has a lot more capability than local law enforcement does. So uh, they have the tools and the methods to get the stuff that they need right now. Or they might already have the data. They just can't apply or look at it. And then once they get the FISA warrant, they can start looking at it and apply it to their investigation. And then the, the other one, we're not going to really dive too much into these uh, because this could be a conversation in and mm-hmm. itself. Mm-hmm. National security letters. This is the um, you're going to give us what we need or you're going to stop doing this or whatever the government wants. And you're not going to be able to tell anyone that you got this or your users that you had to hand over data. And uh, they are actually quite scary. Uh, but again, we won't dive too much into it more than that, uh, just because that in itself, those I mean, that would be a rabbit hole that we could dive into very deeply uh, of, of the impact of national security letters and what what they've done before. But uh, once a warrant is obtained, uh, the data uh, is retrieved, whether it's, you know, given to by the company or, or there's other, you know, methods that law enforcement has. Another method that they have is they have seized devices. They take devices from a investigation or, or something like that, like, a, like an iPhone, for example, and that will come up here. iPhones used for as a very particular example, but a, a cell phone, a hard drive, a laptop, whatever it is, and then they perform a forensic analysis on it to make sure the data isn't modified while they're viewing it. Um, and they use different tools for this. Celebrite is a huge name in the industry when it comes to retrieving data off of cell phones, not just Android, but also iPhone. But there's other forensic tools that they can use for laptops and stuff like that. So that's one way that they can do it if the tools exist. Now, what if the tools don't exist? What, what options does the government have? Well, they, they kind of have two options. There are internal teams, depending on who we're talking about. Agencies have internal teams, which will build the capabilities for them. Uh, sometimes those internal teams can't build the capabilities, not because they don't have the capability to do it, but because they're just over they're under-resourced and, and overworked as they are right now. So they reach out and they go to research labs to build the capabilities that are currently not available for them. And uh, I myself actually have personal research or personal experience with this because I help run a research lab 
uh, or I did, that did exactly this. Our goal was to be able to get information off of devices that no one else could get information off of or build tools that would be able to intercept data that others couldn't currently intercept. Um, so uh, they, there are options. Now, those are more expensive for the government to use. And the government always complains about that, that it costs too much to use these options, which is always an interesting <laughs> dilemma for, for myself because it was like, my question that I use today is how much would you pay to stop the next 9-11? Because that's always the argument that they use. Like the plans for the next 9-11 could be on this device. And it's like, great. How much are you willing to pay U.S. government to stop the next 9-11? What is too much for you? One million, two million, 10 million, mm-hmm. right? How, like you could probably crowdsource this uh, or crowdfund <laughs> it if you really go wanted me. to. Yeah. Get, yeah. Go, fund go fund me. me. <laughs> stop, stop the next 9-11. Go fund me. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so we got to do for our healthcare. I feel like uh, we should be able to do it for, for this as well. What, oh man! What, one other, so, so one other one other thing that I want to highlight uh, with respect to the the sorts of capabilities that are currently in play. Um, so everybody's heard of the term wiretap, right? Like, and this wiretap back in the day actually meant that you were climbing up on a pole and tapping into a wire and getting the electrical signals that go across it. And so there's there's kind of this this frame of mind coming from law enforcement where it's like that capability is what they still want in a lot of ways. And despite the fact that systems are way, way, way more complicated than they used to be in the day, you can't just like go into a data center and tap into a cable and be like, cool, I'm going to get all the data. That's not how it works anymore. The So so what we were talking about before with the end-to-end encryption, again, kind of bringing it back to, to like, like, look, this legislation, the, what it's trying to accomplish, what it's saying it's going to, wanting to accomplish, like it's, it's a good idea to stop predators towards children, 100%, absolutely. But they they already can get around end-to-end encryption. There's already a way to do this. You submit the warrant or the subpoena or the um, you know national security letter, whichever it is, you get it to the company. And like we're talking about a company here that authors the app in question. So that app that I'm using to communicate with Drew and I'm typing in my message and I'm hitting send, the app is then encrypting it, sending that communicate that, that encrypted data up, and then Drew's phone is downloading it and decrypting it. It's not as if they can't push configuration changes to these apps. So they can just push the change to the app and stop my phone from doing that so that it's no longer encrypted. Like basically, if you've gotten a warrant, then you can basically reconfigure your app to say, okay, we're no longer going to do end-to-end encryption. Now we're able to actually get all of that data and supply it to law enforcement. That is already a thing that is that is possible. And that is a way that we get around end-to-end encryption now. So we already have that capability. It's already possible to do this. The big difference here, though, is that with this sort of legislation, you'll be able to go back retroactively and decrypt all the data, right? So it's not so much about like, we want to follow legal standards of we have to give you a warrant before we're able to get anything. It's like, we're going to get everything in history now, uh, even, even though we only gave you the warrant at this point in time. able to be used on certain, on some apps. What we do have is we can attack devices. And this is kind of where my research played into it for a while. We were attacking very particular Android phones is what my lab focused on. And 
and the reason why we focus on Android phones is because we were told not to focus on Apple phones because there's already other labs working on that. And at that time, Apple was very friendly with law enforcement. But that's a whole nother story. Um, but with this, the user who owns the phone is able to see this information. So if you can attack the phone itself and mm-hmm. get the keys, you can then get the messages. And that's what we were doing is we we're developing exploits to attack mobile devices so that they could view data from these unhackable apps. There are multiple ways to get around end-to-end encryption uh, with, you know, the the right amount of, you know, pressure needed by the government uh, and the correct, you know, warrants that, that they do have access to get. But they just don't want to do that because it takes time. That's always going to be their argument. No matter what you say, no matter what solution you come up with, they will say it takes time and we don't have time. Mm-hmm. And in very rare cases, that is true. Uh, but and a lot of times it, it doesn't necessarily mean like getting access right now is going to be uh, the end of, of an investigation or something like that. Right. What they want is they don't want to have to fight with companies. They don't want to have to pay the extra money to get the information. They want it to be super easy. They don't care about the privacy of the user itself. They just want the ability to get the data whenever they want uh, without having to go through all these hoops that they currently have to go to, which, you know, embolden our right to privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, that is their their number one thing is they hate the right to privacy. And, and you know, that's a bold assumption to make, but I, I, <laughs> I have been in meetings where I've talked to uh, federal law enforcement people and they literally said, we hate end-to-end encryption. And I was like, wow, like we're talking about this in an unclassified setting. This is like your public opinion uh, on Jeez. the matter. Um, and, and it wasn't because, you know, it slowed down investigations. It's because they're like, we have to work around it. And it's like, yes. That's the that's, point. <laughs> that's the your point. Your job is not supposed to be like so easy where you just get access to everything. You're supposed to have a really good reason that enables you to get a warrant from a judge before you're able to intrude into somebody's private life like that. That's the whole point. Yeah. And, and, and actually I, I recently, I was in DC actually a, a few days ago, uh, talking about this very subject with some individuals and, uh, you know, I don't really talk about this out in the public, but my, uh, last year in like 2019 and then the beginning year 2020, I, I've been talking to elected officials and their staffers about this subject um, before the DOJ came out with their official statement. Now, my conversation in DC this week was a little bit different because they came out with that official statement. But, you know, I I asked uh, actual law enforcement individuals because I'm not law enforcement. I don't have that background or anything like that. I've built tools for them before, but uh, I asked them, like, will this help you in your investigations? And Three out of three law enforcement individuals, both local law enforcement and federal law enforcement, said, no, this is this is going to be spook land stuff where like agencies are going to use it. Not this isn't going to help our local uh, investigations against these type of items. So not even law enforcement thinks this is going to benefit them in the long term. So which which is, you know, just the opinion of three officers. Right. Just take that anecdotally. But that is interesting that. Three officers that yeah. all have over ten years. Uh, some are over twenty years of experience in the in law enforcement. Say this is not going to help with our investigations. Because again, if you if you have a warrant, 
then you can get access to this data already. All right. Yep. Like it's already possible. It's already a capability. But okay. So what reignited the DOJ even thinking about this? I know like th- this has been as long as I've been involved with the security industry, the government mandating crypto backdoors has always been a thing that has been like, oh, it's coming, it's coming. Um, so why is it now that this is happening? Yeah, I mean, so I believe, and this could be, you know, maybe I've read too much into this, but it definitely seemed to be happening around this time frame. The 2015 San Bernardino uh, terrorist attacks that happened, right? There was that married couple that, that did that huge shooting and it was, you know, described as a terrorist attack on December 2nd, 2015. So five years ago. And the big thing there was an iPhone was put into evidence, but could not be unlocked by law enforcement. And this caused a whole bunch of controversy on the law enforcement side. And it was talked about in the media. You know, the law enforcement, law enforcement was saying, we're only asking Apple to unlock this phone, uh, which was kind of untruthful with this. Um, They were asking Apple to build software to unlock iPhones, not just this one iPhone. They didn't just want the data from this one iPhone. They wanted Apple to build new software to get around the security of the iPhone. And Apple, uh, who had a history of working with law enforcement, and they still do work with law enforcement. Don't don't take that hat of history. Like every, every organization works with law enforcement. You are legally yep. required to do so. If you get a warrant, yep. it has to be served. Yeah, it's a, it's a legal process, right? It's, it's not like they're doing it behind their user's back or anything like that. There's a process that law enforcement goes through. It's legal. It's defined. It's agreed that it's a good process to use, which is what we're saying. Like, still use that process. Yeah, Don't great. sidestep that process. Absolutely. Um, and, and Apple works with law enforcement, but Apple was like, we're not going to build this new piece of software that will allow you to get around our iPhone security, you know, whenever you want. Right. So it wasn't Apple being the bad people that even some in the media were portraying Apple to be like they're not working with law enforcement. Um, No, Apple was actually doing a very smart and good thing, not just for its company, not just for the users of Apple devices, uh, but for the industry as well. They were saying we are not going to build tools that allow law enforcement unfettered access to any iPhone. Get a warrant. Go through the process and we will get you that data. And they they eventually did get a warrant. But before they did that, actually, they, they paid an Israeli company called Celebrate um, like a little over a million dollars to get into that phone. Uh, and now there's other companies out there. There's one that spun from uh, Georgia Tech, right? Right, Chris? What are, they're called Gray Key or something? I'm not, I'm not familiar with that. Oh, yeah. There's a, it's like a, some Georgia Tech alum that came huh. up with a company called, called Gray Key. And... Um, it is uh, it is uh, a very cool product. Uh, it costs fifteen thousand dollars a year, and we'll get you into the iPhones. Usually, it takes uh, a few days. Sometimes it takes you know a few weeks or a few months, but uh, it, it will get you into iPhones. Hmm. And it's reasonably priced. Law enforcement uses it now, and it actually spun up because of this San Bernardino terrorist attack that happened. When law enforcement was saying, "Hey, we need this to uh, we need phones unlocked," right? And they were reaching out to everyone. I mean, they, they reached out to to myself. There was law enforcement representatives reaching out to myself uh, because they knew I had experience with this. They were reaching out to my friends who also had experience with this, which was hilarious because 
you know, as soon as they reached out to one of us, we're all like talking together and we're like, well, we're all going to work on this together. If one of us gets a contract, like <laughs> whoever, who, whoever gets the contract, it doesn't matter. Like we're all yeah. going to be working on this. So we're all like talking about the same prices and essentially when we were talking to law enforcement because we're all we're all part of the same group that you know works together on this as researchers yeah it's a fairly tight community in security uh there's there's people know each other yeah very much so and so but they didn't go with any of they didn't go with us they didn't go with any of the the my friends and other researchers that we knew uh in the industry they went with celebrate but yeah, so th- this is this this date, December second, twenty fifteen. This and if you just look up like iPhone law enforcement terrorist attack, or if you look up um, like San Bernardino iPhone, or if you look up cyber pathogen, which is a word mm-hmm. that was made up uh, so during good. this. It's San Bernardino uh, AG, I believe, tweeted cyber pathogen as the reason why they need to get into this iPhone. Um, but this really is what many people agree is the point where the DOJ was just like, we can use this. Like, this is going to be the thing that we are going to use to make companies uh, submit to our will. Well, five years later, and it hasn't happened. So the DOJ had to come up with new ways to do this, right? They had to become a little bit smarter when it came to dealing with this. And they have became a lot smarter. And it's quite dangerous actually some of the games that they're playing in my opinion and the opinion of people much smarter than me as well this 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 right now and again chris read that statement from october 11th and and we're just trying to dissect it a little bit i mean we could spend two or three hours talking about this and talking about each little part of this bill but we just trying to give you an overview of this and make sure that you understand what is really being said when it is, you know, talked about out and you see it happening or, or you see it discussed in your workplace or on the news or something like this. This is supposed to give you an insight into this, not a deep dive into it. But let's talk about how the DOJ is trying to get this through Congress right now. There's a few different ways they're trying to get it through Congress, actually. And some of them are, are what I would consider uh, a little... Hmm, what is the phrase I want to use for this? Dishonest? Yes. Yeah, I was, I was thinking about unethical, but yeah, dishonest <laughs> would definitely be... <laughs> it, it can be both. It can be both dishonest and unethical. It's yeah. hand in hand. <laughs> it, yeah. It, the first thing that they're trying to do, right, as Chris pointed out early in the episode... The guise of stopping illegal activity online uh, and child exploitation, stopping that online, those are the two routes that they're trying to take right now, right? The main one being the anti-child exploitation thing, which again, I don't know any pro-child exploitation yeah. person yeah. at all, right? And and I would never you know, interface with anyone who is pro-child exploitation, but they use that because it is a very smart tactic. Because as soon as you're against the bill that they want passed or against the general concept that they want passed, you are then now protecting the rights of pedos and all that stuff and, and all this other BS that they will try to push up onto you uh, and blame because you stood against this anti-encryption bill. They will use this to tr- literally try to destroy people's lives. And uh, we'll talk about that actually, a little warning. Uh, that I got from a very 
very smart friend of mine who is a federal law enforcement individual, but they will use this to destroy you um, in a way to just never recover. No politician wants to be seen as the person who, who voted against anti-child uh, exploitation. They always want to be like, hey, I voted for that. The other thing that they're, they're doing for the big tech companies like Facebook and Google, and this is something that I didn't necessarily pick up on, but uh, as I said, smarter individuals, people like the EFF, Electronic Frontier Foundation, uh, which is a group of lawyers, uh, they were talking about how antitrust investigations are being pushed right now during the same time. It just so happens that during the same time that they want this stuff passed, antitrust uh, investigations are happening into companies. Um, how convenient that both of these are happening simultaneously. Yep. And that's, that's, uh, there, it's a bit more than speculation that uh, when Microsoft was the target of an antitrust suit, that was the result of them not caving to law enforcement pressure to provide all their data. Yeah. It, I mean, this is a tool that is used by government when they have tried to exhaust other routes and they are like, well, no other route can be exhausted or we're sick of exhausting routes. So we're just going to go to this. Mm -hmm. um, so, again, this isn't just some, you know, crazy conspiracy. You know, we're, we're linking all the little dots together with yards or, or with yarn, you know, on a, on a post board. This is literally uh, something that has been done before in the past and is a known technique that is just in the tool shed of the government to be used against large companies. The other thing, removing Section 203 protections. And I'm going to give you a one sentence item about what Section 203 is because a lot of people don't know what it is. It is the ability for companies not to be responsible for the content that is generated by other users on their site. And, and it came up about with the phone company. So what this means is that phone companies are providers of service and they can't be responsible for someone planning a terrorist attack over the phone because I don't control that. Where a publisher, like a newspaper, can control that. So they don't have those protections. But social media companies generally fall under the protection of Section 203 because they claim they are not publishers of information. They do not edit information. And that is coming under scrutiny right now. But they are looking to remove this in and itself. And this talk is not about a Section 203 reform um, but it is, you know, that is one of the things that they're saying is we're going to remove this protection from you if you do not comply with this. And this is seen uh, actually in a bill called the Earn It Act as an E-A-R-N space I-T. You have to earn your Section 203 protections. And you do that by allowing law enforcement access to data and combating, you know, illegal uh, activities on your site. Now, the interesting thing about the Earn It Act, and the Earn It Act is, is one of 2020. It's not passed yet. It's going through, uh, you know, how bills get passed. And so, so it's not actual law yet. But it, the Earn It uh, Act of 2020 in itself does not use the word encryption in it at all. There, there is, I believe there is no use of that word in that bill. And they don't have to. They just say, like, hey, uh, you have to be able to see this data. So so they designed this bill, and it is a bipartisan bill. Um, so people from both sides of the aisle, it's not just, you know, one side or the other. Both sides 
uh, are voting or, or, you know, have co-sponsored this bill. And there's other sponsors as well. But they are saying you have to be able to view this content and and stop it on your site if you want to earn your 203 protection, which is interesting in itself. The most interesting part is like how how would you have to stop it or or how would you be able to see that it's happening if your site uses and and encryption? The bill doesn't use the word encryption. They just say figure it out basically. And and it is alluded to like you have to be able to view your end-to-end encryption data from your users itself. So the bill doesn't have to have that word. And that I'm sure this is speculation. This is speculation from Drew Porter. So take it with a grain of salt. I am sure they designed this bill purposely to make sure that it didn't use that word or, yeah. or allude to that directly. It, it yeah. is not something I think that happened accidentally. That would be awfully coincidental. Like, yeah. Yep. We forgot to do that. Uh, nope. I bet you it was designed. And I'll go one step further uh, and say, I bet you DOJ had a huge part in pushing this bill. That's just my opinion. That That is the opinion of, of Drew. So take that as you as you will. You know, I'm not saying that's the opinion of Chris or, or of Logan either. I'm just saying... From seeing uh, the bit that I've seen from the inside, not dealing directly with this bill, but discussing this with with elected officials throughout the last two years, uh, I definitely have a strong feeling that it was probably pushed by the DOJ. Like this is what we need, so uh, y'all have your, you know, legal advisors write it up for you and put your name on it, and then let's let's vote on it. Again, maybe it wasn't that, but there are lots of things in there that coincide directly with what the DOJ wants. And they're doing it quite sneakily. Yep. Yeah, just to, and, and to be clear, the, the, uh, the thing that I read off earlier is from the DOJ. And we are now talking about the Earn It Act, which is not from the DOJ, but they're effectively doing the same thing. <laughs> yep, they are. And there, there are more than you know a few parallels there, which is what makes it scary. And then the next thing that really makes it scary is like we're losing this battle, right? Like we're losing this battle in Congress. I've had these discussions and, and I, I remember, you know, one in particular I was having with a senator and I told the senator like, hey, these anti-encryption things, this is before the statement that came out by DOJ. This is before the Earn It Act, uh, you know, was was presented. Uh, this was early, early. Um, well, no, no either early, early 2020 or, or late 2019. And I told them like, hey, this end-to-end encryption stuff, like it, it is not there to really, like to, DOJ's wants to break this it is not there to, to stop terrorism really, right? Like it, it is being used as a guise, like don't be fooled by it. And I could tell that, nope, they didn't care. Yeah. They, they, we're going to vote for any bill that was going to defeat it because it was going to benefit them more on an election year than if they didn't vote on it. And it is crazy. And the, the, the wording that they used to me uh, is what gave, it, gave me that impression. And I won't repeat exactly what they, they said. Um, because there were actually other people in that room, and I don't want to, you know, necessarily oust this person uh, right now because they haven't voted on anything, and I and I think they are someone that 
you know, the opinion could be changed, but it just would take more than one conversation to change it. So I, I don't want to put them on blast until they actually vote for something. Um, but it is, it is a losing battle. I would say more than, more than 50% of the people who I've talked to on this, uh, who are elected officials are for, you know, the, the disbanding of end to end encryption for law enforcement purposes, but they'll say it much more elegant than that. They'll, they'll say, you know, what, what they want is to ensure security and safety of the United States populace. Yeah. yeah. And everyone wants that. Yeah. But what that really means is we're just going to sidestep like encryption. Law enforcement needs to be able to view data quickly and companies need to work with the them. The legal process is just so slow. It would be so much nicer if we didn't have to deal with all these pesky uh, civil rights. Uh, <laughs> so so yeah. I, I want to I want to wrap that part up and, and, and talk about how like what is this actually going to do? It's higher, higher likelihood than ever before that something like this is actually going to pass. Uh, we're losing this battle. Does this actually make us any safer? And the answer to that is a resounding. Absolutely not. Absolutely yeah, no. not. So, so, okay, let's say that, let's say that this passes and all of a sudden Facebook and uh, Google and Zoom and like all of these communications companies now have to have a government mandated backdoor in all of their encryption, or maybe they just turn encryption off entirely. Uh, so it's like, cool, they don't even have to have to deal with it anymore. That means that all of your data is just being transmitted in the, in the clear. Uh, let's say that they do that. Do you think the criminals are going to stop using encrypted technology? Like, it, nope. Yeah, it, no, there's no way. There's absolutely no way. There's actually just a big, um, I, I, I forget the, the specific details, but it was a big crime syndicate uh, all throughout the EU where uh, there was this encrypted or this like basically secure Android phone that was being sold. Uh, and like, so this is a device that has all the physical sensors removed, so, like no GPS. I don't even think it had like a cell, uh, a cell radio on it anymore. Uh, no Bluetooth. It actually ripped out the the physical sensors and 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 a bunch of the antennas. And then it's like a custom version of Android. Everything is encrypted. Uh, you can only talk to other uses of this phone. It was being sold for thousands and thousands of dollars. And there are all these criminals using it. Like that stuff will not cease to exist. Like the only thing you're gonna do is make it so that legitimate users do not have protection. The folks that actually want to hide their behavior will still be able to use encryption and will be able to use it in such a way where they cannot be like, nobody can be compelled to give up their data, right? Because, okay, maybe they'll stop using Facebook or Google or whatever. And so now you don't even have the place where they're using it with the capability to turn that encryption off as a result of a lawful warrant. They actually have now been pushed onto some other system that they have even less visibility into. This is not going to make anybody safer. This is only going to impact non-criminals. That 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 is one hundred percent correct, and there are there are some interesting rumors actually dealing with that device that that you're talking about, Chris, <laughs> uh, in Europe. But but we'll, we'll, we won't cover those here. We'll, we'll cover them in the cons- our next conspiracy yeah, yeah, uh, podcast. But yeah, they, they it is this is not going to stop crime. And, and again, law enforcement. I mean, I, just three of them, uh, but people with with multiple decades of experience in law enforcement also agree like this is not going to to do anything for them their people are just going to be moving to other platforms mm-hmm. and it's software so it's much harder to restrict than you know let's say a physical object it it is it is much more difficult yeah. to to stop 
criminals from using another platform than than it is to have this real breaking or 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 managing of of all these new I'll call them bypasses uh that law enforcement wants. Yeah. So what can you do, right? We've talked a lot about like doom and gloom and I hate things that are just like pure doom and gloom. Though in the world of security there are lots of things <laughs> in the world of privacy that. there are lots of things that are doom and gloom uh which is why many people in security if you haven't met them uh have a negative outlook on mm-hmm. on a lot of things uh just because this is what we deal with every single day of our life but what can you do i, I want to give you some things that you can do the first thing that you can do call your representative and and send emails but but call and the reason why i say call is because they they do track those metrics, how many people have called, how many people have made messages of it. This does not mean that you'll be able to speak to your representative directly. Uh, remember that. I have had a few people say, I called my representative and I got you know sent to an intern. Yeah, that's who you're going to get spoken to or that's who's going to talk to you. But that's fine. Leave your message. Be polite. Be firm in your message. Do not scream at them. Do not leave angry voicemails or anything like that. Show your displeasure. And discuss about how, you know, many in your community also have this feeling. Donate to groups that are fighting against this. The EFF is one. We have no personal affiliation with the EFF, just to let you know. But we do love them. I know we've, uh, yeah, uh, we we, we uh, do have folks that we know who work in there, uh, work for the EFF. We do have friends that, that have worked for the EFF before. But uh, with that, uh, we have no personal affiliation with them. Mm-hmm. We've brought them up a few times, but they are doing excellent work with this uh, right now. Uh, they, they are the ones that are really pushing out this. Donate to them. They're going to be the ones fighting for it, as well as other groups that, that are you know, around. But the EFF is definitely one that's been fighting this since the beginning. And then share this information. Share this podcast. Shameless uh, self-promotion there, but... <laughs> Share share this so that others who don't know, others who were like you in the beginning of this podcast can become informed and then can also take the actions that, you know, we want them to take. Calling our representatives, getting active in this, sharing this information, looking up what is really happening right now in the world of privacy. Because it is something that I think is being sidestepped and something that is a scary proposition if if it does go away at some point, right? We see what happens when it goes away in certain countries. And I'm going to use China. And China is always the country used as the, you know, token country as like what happens when privacy goes away. But it is used because it is a great example of what happens when privacy goes away. And there's a lot of bad things happening over in China right now. Um, And a lot of that stems from the lack of privacy and the lack of of coordinated efforts and communication. So with that, share everything you can, take action, get involved, educate yourself. Don't just take our word for it. Look into this and really start taking action so that you can have privacy today and your kids can have privacy tomorrow. So here's your three takeaways for today's episode. One, the Department of Justice wants backdoors put into products made by U.S. companies. Two, if the DOJ is successful, countries like Russia and China and organized crime syndicates like cartels will also have access to all the data that is now accessible via these backdoors. Three, 
Privacy has become a luxury good that we must fight for more than ever today. If you like privacy, you're going to have to fight for it. It very well might be a relic of the past in a few decades. To wrap things up, there's a war going on for the privacy of the citizens in the United States. And right now, we are losing. The DOJ wants access to your information, and they have convinced the major players from both political parties to go along and push this effort. If we do not take action today, our right to privacy may be erased in the future. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Security Explained. If you enjoyed listening, we'd love to hear from you. We're always looking for new topics that our audience finds interesting, and you might be able to pick our next show. Feel free to reach out via social media or rate our podcast on your listening platform to let us know how we're doing. You can find us on the web at securityexplained.fm or on Twitter at SecExplained. Thanks again, and until next time, stay safe.